Welcome to the Smith Creek Archaeological Project podcast. I'm your host, Tom Stanley. Since the late 1800s, researchers from the Penn Museum at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia have been leading excavations to all corners of the world. The year 2015 is no different. A variety of museum-sponsored excavations are in progress this year, including one that's in its first season this year, the Smith Creek Archaeological Project, led by Dr. Megan Cassebaum. My name is Tom Stanley. I work at the Penn Museum as the museum's social media coordinator, and I was fortunate enough to be granted permission by the museum's director, Dr. Julian Siggers, to travel into the field and document some of the Smith Creek Project, which kicks off in late May. I come from a communications background rather than an archaeology or anthropology background, so before I did anything else, I wanted to learn as much as possible about the site on which the project is focused and what makes it worthy of our attention. So I sat down for a few interviews with Dr. Megan Cassebaum, who goes by Meg, to hear it straight from the expert. Meg, what is uh, your... Um, who are you? What is your job title? Um, I am an assistant professor of anthropology in the Department of Anthropology at University of Pennsylvania and assistant curator, wine garden assistant curator for North America at the Penn Museum. So uh, this summer you'll have an additional title on top of those two, won't you? Yeah, I'll be the director of the Smith Creek Archaeological Project, um, which is being run through the Penn Museum and the University of Pennsylvania. Now tell me a little bit about that. Um, so it's a project that I've been planning for a couple of years, uh, and I'm just getting started for the first time this summer. Um, it will be an excavation taking place on a, a Native North American site, uh, particularly an Indian Mound site um, in southwestern Mississippi in uh, Wilkinson County. Okay. Um, what are you going to be doing there, Meg? So I'll be bringing uh, a total of 12 students with me, grad students and undergraduates, both from here, mostly from here at the University of Pennsylvania, but also from um, University of North Carolina and University of Alabama. And we are going to excavate both on and around the mounds to try and learn a bit more about how the mounds were used, the types of activities that took place on and around them, um, and hopefully kind of narrow the range for exactly when the mounds were constructed. Now, when you say mounds, what do you mean by that? Uh, so these are earthen constructions, uh, entirely made prehistorically. So for these for these particular mounds, they were probably built between um, AD six hundred and AD one thousand. Um, and they're earthen constructions, no stone, made entirely of earth. Uh, most of them have sort of. They look like pyramids with the tops chopped off. So they're what we call platform mounds. Um, but they also, uh, there includes at least one that might have been sort of a conical or a round dome-shaped mound as well. Um, but generally just piles of dirt made prehistorically um, to either uh, provide locations for burial of the dead or to uh, build structures on top of sort of service foundations for structures. Who um, made them? So, uh, mounds throughout the eastern United States are constructed by the Native North American groups that lived here in sort of the millennia prior to European contact. Uh, in this particular case, we can't assign these mounds to sort of one particular tribe. Um, and the reason for that is that they're just too early. So tribes don't really have names until fairly late in prehistory when they're forced to identify themselves um, to Europeans who are able to write that down. 
Um, so in this particular case, we assume they were the ancestors of certain tribes that either used to or still inhabit uh, the lower Mississippi River Valley, but um, we can't associate them with, with one particular tribe by, by its name, because um, it's about 300, 400 years too early to know the names of the tribes. Okay. What can you tell me about the, uh, the pre-Columbian history of the site? Um, so, generally, the, the start at the beginning, if you Okay. As early as you can. Well, so the, the area in general, sort of the, the area of the lower Mississippi Valley is inhabited um, probably starting as early as about 15,000 B.C. Um, we don't have any particular evidence of that time period at this site. At that point, the population levels would have been incredibly low, um, and it would take a lot of excavation to find any evidence of the people living there. But it's distinctly possible that the landscape was being used by that period um, by sort of traveling mobile bands of hunters and gatherers who were moving across the eastern United States, um, hunting things. I mean, lot, there were some large animals, mastodons, the types of things we think about from the Ice Age, um, but then the types of animals that we still have today as well. Um, so through time, the first evidence that we have sort of distinctly at this location, um, I actually just figured this out by looking at the collections that the landowner has collected, um, but we have some beads that look to date to the sort of middle archaic period, and the middle archaic period, um, somewhere, guessing somewhere probably between 5,000 and 3,000 BC. Um, now these beads aren't from exactly the same location as the mounds, but they're from very nearby, and um, we don't know exactly where they were collected by a landowner, but at this point those are kind of the earliest evidence we have for human occupation, like right there at the location where we're digging. Um, the mound building itself likely didn't start until about 600 or so AD, and that's when the landscape would have become more densely populated with people at this particular location. Um, we don't have a ton of pottery or anything indicating that there were a lot of people there before then, but starting about 600 AD, we see a huge explosion of material at the site. Um, we see the beginnings probably of the mound building, um, and it seems like people continued that process of living there in large numbers, um, of, of building the mounds themselves up until probably about 1,000 to 1,200 A.D. And then after that, we don't see a whole lot of evidence on, on the particular site anymore for any human occupation. So it kind of goes from being a scattered population probably coming and going off the site through a period of intense mound building and activity at the place and then sort of a general abandonment. Uh, off of that, uh, and this might be jumping the gun a little bit, uh, in this in the scheme of these questions, but uh, abandonment, what, uh, what, what caused, any idea what caused the abandonment? No, we really don't know, and particularly with the level of excavation, we, the site's basically just been tested. I mean, at this point, I've dug there for about a total of two weeks, um, two summers ago, and this season will really be our chance to answer a lot of those types of questions. So we don't know anything about the abandonment of the site now in reality. We know that at some point the pottery sort of stops being deposited there. We usually take pottery to equal people in some sense. You know, if there isn't pottery there, there probably aren't a whole lot of people there. Um, and the few, few scattered shirts that we see showing up uh, from later periods might just be someone who came to visit the site or somebody who was traveling across the site. Um, but we don't really know. We don't even really know if it was abandoned quickly or slowly. Um, we certainly don't know exactly when, and we have absolutely no idea why. Um, the only guess that I can make at this point comes from sort of broader knowledge about how mounds and mound sites are occupied and abandoned in the Lower Valley in general, um, which generally shows that 
sites are occupied for a while, and then the population, for some reason or another, opts to move to another site somewhat nearby. Um, and they just sort of jump mountain centers through time. And that may have to do with the fact that, you know, trash is accumulating at this place, and at some point it's much more pleasant to live somewhere else, or that a new... Um, a new group of people starts to build a mountain center elsewhere that becomes more important for some reason. The population sort of goes over there. Um, but we don't have any evidence of, like, a catastrophe or something horrible that happened that sort of wiped out the site. It's likely that they just moved on to another location. Um, and there's... So there's another site... I don't remember off the top of my head exactly how far down the road, but within probably five miles um, that has a single mound but is a bit later kind of... Oh, maybe overlaps a little bit with, with Smith Creek, this site, um, and then continues much later in time, so it's possible the populations might have moved there. Um, but there's really no way to track that for sure. We just know that they, they generally move from site to site through time. Um, the people who, uh, who built these mounds, what, what, do we definitely, what do you definitely know about them? Um, so these particular mounds, um, I mean, we know that, that they, starting from the very basics, we know that they were the ancestors of modern Native American groups. Um, for a long time in sort of North American prehistory, that was debated. You know, people thought they could have been built by aliens, they could have been built by Mayan populations, Egyptian populations. Um, so in this particular part of the world, we assume that they were built by the ancestors of Native American groups who were inhabiting the lower Mississippi Valley when the Spanish and the French arrived in sort of the 1500s. Um... So there's a number of tribes they could have been associated with. The most likely candidate is a group of Indians that we call the Natchez, um, which is what the town of Natchez, Mississippi, is named after. Now, that tribe doesn't exist in any sort of federal capacity anymore. Um, they were largely wiped out by the French um, in a particularly dramatic incident in the early colonial period. Um, but we assume because of the geographic location of Natchez being very close to the site that, that those were probably the people, um, the ancestors of those people were the ones constructing these mounds. There are other similarities as well. So the pottery has some similarities from this time period to Natchez historic Indian pottery as well. Um, so particular motifs, um, the particular spiral designs sort of are, are very characteristic of Natchez pottery, and they start to show up at, at sites like Smith Creek um, that date to this particular time period. Now, the pottery doesn't look identical. Um, when I try and explain this to people, sometimes I'll say that, like, you know, you can identify a Ford pickup truck starting in the 1950s all the way through today, but certain things about it will have changed, and those changes through time will make a difference in your ability to say, okay, this comes from this time period. So Natchez Indian pottery looks like a 2000s pickup truck, and, and Coles Creek pottery from Smith Creek looks like a 1950s pickup truck. You can tell that there are some similarities, but there are also a whole lot of differences between them. Um, so things like that kind of hit home the idea that it's not just the geographic similarity between the tribes that lead us to believe that they were related, but there's other reasons. The material culture kind of leads us that direction, too. Um, now, granted, by the time Europeans arrived, the tribes might have split up, and what we might be talking about um, at Smith Creek is some combination of the Natchez tribe, but also some of the other local tribes, like the Creek or the, the Chickasaw, um, groups that still exist sort of in uh, uh, the Choctaw as well, still exist in Mississippi today, and likely, you know, their ancestors may not have been that differentiated from Natchez ancestors in the past, but there's no surefire way to, to tell that. So um, they don't necessarily... They don't necessarily recognize that these sites are the sites of their ancestors, but they recognize them as sort of broadly related to their, their culture in the past.
Meg's Ford pickup truck analogy is great for a beginner like myself. The world is always changing, but not necessarily by leaps and bounds. It got me thinking about the Smith Creek site as a whole, and whether its configuration of mounds had anything in common with other ancient sites. So I guess we haven't really described this. There's three mounds on the site. Um, they are on the, the north, east, and west sides. The biggest one is on the west side. Um, the burial mound is on the north side, and then there's a smaller mound on the east side that we don't know very much about yet. Um, but the south side doesn't have a mound. Um, is that formulation typical of this kind of site? Yeah, so during this time period, during the sort of late woodland, Coles Creek culture time period in the lower valley, we usually find like combinations of two to four mounds arranged around sort of central open spaces. Um, the easiest ones to see tend to have four mounds because you can kind of see that there's like four mounds and then a, a rectangular or an oval plaza in the middle of them. Um, in this case, we only have three uh, mounds instead of four. In some cases, we only have two. But it always seems like the area between the mounds, whether there's two, three, or four of them, um, sort of served a special function. You know, it's, it's treated differently from the land that's outside of the mounds. And thus, we call it a plaza. Um, in later times, sometimes, I mean, these plazas can have as many as 20-something mounds surrounding them. But in this time period, it tends to be like two to four, and then gradually growing in numbers from there. So in this case, we have three, um, which, is, which is reasonably typical. And then we're missing the one, on the, the one that would potentially be there on the south side. Um, but we don't have any evidence that there was ever a mound there. We don't think there was. Um, all the... Maps of the site, various things always show three. We don't see any little, like, suspicious rise down there or anything. Um, but we do think that there was probably stuff happening down there. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I want to dig there, is to try and figure out, okay, if there wasn't a mound, then were they using the space? And if they were, how, what types of activities were taking place there? Were they the same types of activities that happened, like, in the middle? Or is the southern edge sort of being used differently somehow? Clearly, at some point in time, someone created and cared for this landscape in a very unique way. But why did they do it in this way? What was the purpose for building these earthen mounds at all these locations throughout the land? I asked Meg for her best explanation. Um, so we don't really know. And honestly, that's like one of the big goals of my research, is to try and figure that out. So... There are a variety of hypotheses that people have come up with for what they could have served, and these range from things like um, residences for the chief, for like the, the primary elite within a society to live on top of, you know, the same way it's cool to live on top of the biggest hill, it was cool for them to live on top of the biggest mound. Um, they made of house temples or other religious structures on top of them where people would have gone to participate in particular rituals. Um, I mean, there's probably hundreds of things that have been suggested for what these mounds were. Um, but, but what these mounds were in this particular time period is a much more difficult question to answer, and that's because not that many of them have been excavated. So this, I think I mentioned earlier, but this is kind of a time period where there's really cool stuff happening before it, there's really cool stuff happening after it, and it's actually been referred to in the literature as the, quote, good gray cultures of the late woodland, which is like the least dramatic, exciting quote in the world, but but generally, I mean, the point is that people don't study them because they're just not quite as cool as the cultures before them and the cultures after them. Now, I think that's completely not true, um, but the material culture isn't as dramatic. Um, there's not that long-distance trade we were talking about earlier. There's not all of these other things, and so people haven't focused on them. 
So the, the best answer to your question is probably that we know that the mounds in later time periods that have flat tops like the mounds that we have um, were used to provide the foundations for structures dedicated to elite people within the society, often like the house of a chief. Um, we know that mounds in the previous period before it were used primarily for ritual purposes focusing on burial of the dead. Um, but those mounds have kind of round tops, they don't look the same as the mounds in this time period. So what we have going on right here is this switch in mound form from round top mounds used for burial of the dead to flat top mounds used for foundations for elite structures. And in this middle period, we have flat top mounds that we don't know what they're using for. Um, so one of the main goals of my research broadly is to understand what these earliest platform mounds are functioning as within the society. And to make a very long story short, in my dissertation and various other research that I've done, we don't find much evidence for there actually being chiefs during this time period. So. To give a couple examples, we don't find um, fancy burials where certain people are buried with much nicer things than other people. We don't find some houses that are bigger and fancier with nicer material goods than the other people. Um, we don't even really find big cities where certain people are living in nice neighborhoods and other people are living in, in sort of lower class neighborhoods. We just don't find any evidence of that sort of social differentiation. So if you eliminate the idea that a chief is living in a building on top of this mound, then the question of what's happening on top of this flat top mound becomes pretty important and kind of difficult to answer. So honestly, in the past, I've only dug off the mounds, either on the edge of the mounds or in the areas between the mounds at the site. Um, I've never dug on top of them. And uh, so this summer we'll put some excavations kind of right on top of one of the mounds and see what we can find. Um, see if we can find a building or if we don't find a building. If we do find a building, can we find any evidence of what that building was used for? At my dissertation site, the site that I dug for the sort of nine-ish years before this, um, some of the mounds had no buildings on top at all, even though they had flat tops. Other ones had buildings, but there was no evidence that those buildings um, were residences or even traditional buildings with like four walls and a roof. They might have just been posts or standing screens and platforms and things like that, but, but no evidence that it was like someone's house. Um, so we don't really believe that there was someone living on top. We think that instead they might have been platforms for some other type of activity. Um, anything ranging from sort of temples, you know, religious and ceremonial services, um, to public displays of particular events. Um, in, in some ways, and, and this is still a hypothesis, but I like to compare these mound sites to like fairgrounds, something like fairgrounds where like a certain percentage of the community would come there for some sort of event. That event might involve sort of public display, displays, it might involve um, ceremonial or ritual activities in some sense, but we don't really know. But those events might have been publicly viewable by kind of raising them up on top of like a platform, almost like a stage. So we don't, we, you know, I mean, the short answer is we just don't know, and we have to dig up there to figure it out. If we find the evidence of an elite structure there, then maybe we can argue there was a chief during this time period, but my guess is that we aren't going to find that, and that we're going to have to come up with some other explanation for what caused people to stop building round mounds with burials in them and start building flat-topped mounds um, for events to happen on top of. So there, uh, there's a lot sort of to figure out there still. Now, personally... I think of myself as a fairly well-traveled individual, at least in a domestic sense. Back in 2009, I spent a summer traveling by car across the United States, visiting all 48 contiguous states and traveling over 20,000 miles in total. 
but not once did I notice an earthen mound rising out of the ground anywhere. And according to Meg, these things are all over the place, especially along the Mississippi River. So I wanted to learn about the practice of making mounds and where else we might find it. Tell me about mound making as a practice uh, and its exclusivity to the Americas. Is it just an American kind of thing, or can you think of examples of mounds elsewhere in the world? Um, Similar to yeah. these. No, there are definitely mounds elsewhere in the world. It's potentially the most widespread in America in terms of the range of cultures that did it and the time range over which it happened. So it starts really early here before it starts other places. Um, and there are still cultures doing mound building practices today. So we've got this kind of incredibly long history of mound building here, but it exists elsewhere. So um, a really famous example would be that there are a number of earthen mounds associated with Stonehenge. Um, so Neolithic Europe is another example of a culture that builds earthen mounds. Um, that happens in Britain, it happens in Ireland, sort of all over Europe. Uh, they tend to refer to them as tumuli instead of mounds. Um, Such but as the one in yeah, Yes, exactly. <laughs> so they're pretty rare, or pretty common in certain areas of the world and during certain time periods, but then pretty rare in other parts of the world during other time periods. Um, a lot of... I, I, I guess, I, I think that a lot of the mounds and other cultures are primarily burial mounds. And one thing, um, earthen mounds in particular are primarily burial mounds. And so one of the things that stands out about the U.S. is that mound building sort of continues. Burials are one thing that happens in them, but other events happen on them or around them as well later in prehistory. And in a lot of parts of the world, those types of mounds that serve as platforms for structures or stages for activity... Um, a lot of those are actually made out of stone. So in some ways, we can think of the Maya pyramids, the Maya, Maya platforms, as very similar to some of the later earthen platforms in the Mississippian part of the eastern United States as well. But ours are made out of earth and theirs are made out of stone. So they look very different when you see them. Um, but in some ways, the process of constructing them, how they were used, what they meant, were probably very similar across all sort of monumental constructions. So the pyramids in Egypt, the... Temple of the Sun at Teotihuacan, um, all the Maya pyramids, period. I mean, they have similar functions. So there's a lot of overlap in the way that we should think about monumental architecture all over the place. Um, that said, you, know, you go to some of these tumuli in, in Europe, and they're going to look a lot like Middle Woodland Mounds um, in the United States. A lot of them have burials in them. Um, some don't. Some are huge. Uh, they build... Uh, so, like, an example of, of an earthwork site that sort of resembles some of the types of mounds we have in Ohio and stuff in the United States um, is, like, the Hill of Tara um, in Ireland that has a series of circular enclosures that are built out of earth. Um, if you look at a picture of that and you look at some of the pictures of the earthen enclosures in um, Kentucky and Ohio and that region of the United States, you could see a lot of similarities. So it's not, it's not isolated to the United States, but the United States has an incredible number and an incredible sort of time depth associated with them. About how many mound sites would you say that there are here, uh, both in the lower Mississippi Valley and in the, um, you know, the broader North America in that's, In some ways, that's an impossible question to answer. Um, why? I, I, I mean, I can, I could make some guesses, but my guesses could be off by, you know, by 
exponential numbers. I mean, it's, it's incredible, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So um, one of the reasons is that there are pl- I'm constantly learning from, say, landowners in Mississippi of new mounds that we've never heard of that have been on private land for a really long time. Maybe they were documented really early on. Maybe they weren't. Um, and they're way off a road. No one drives past them. Uh, nobody's plowing them, so we're not hearing about the artifacts. They're just sitting there. Um, so, I mean, I, I got a phone call just, gosh, yesterday from somebody who thinks they have a burial mound on their property in Pennsylvania, and he just called my office and was like, hi, this is my name, here's where I live, you're an archaeologist, you work in the eastern United States, can you come look at this and tell me if it's a mound? Same thing happens in Mississippi all the time. So chances are there are, no exaggeration, thousands of mounds out there that we don't know about yet. Um, Similarly, there are thousands of mounds that we know existed that no longer exist because they've been torn down either um, through like massive construction projects like the construction of cities or the construction of highways um, or gradually destroyed through plowing or digging them up for fill dirt. So, you know, in some ways maybe it evens out and the number that we know about that no longer exists and the number that we don't know about that currently exists could kind of even each other out. But we're talking the magnitude of thousands when we come to both of those sort of, those options. Um, Just as one example, there's a a site in Illinois, Cahokia, that I think we've talked a little bit about um, is probably, it's the largest site in the United States and it's it's really well known. Um, But what very few people know is that there's a large mound complex, not quite as big as Cahokia, but nearly, um, that would have been very close to it, uh, right underneath what is the contemporary city of St. Louis. So there's only one mound known that still exists from that. That that mound was leveled? Well, there there is one mound that still exists. There were probably, I'll check the number for you, but uh, somewhere between 20 and 50 mounds at that site originally, all of which have been leveled. Um, That's not to say there's no evidence of them. If we dig under the parking lots and buildings in St. Louis, we may find little bits of what's left of those mounds. Um, But right now there's only one that has actually managed to survive. And we have pictures of the removal of a lot of these mounds from the St. Louis Mound Group from the 1800s that are just amazing pictures of people standing on top of these mounds as they're just taking them down sort of chunk by chunk by chunk. So in some cases like that, we have documented evidence of those mounds disappearing, but there have to be just, you know, multiple times more that were destroyed without us ever knowing that they existed, without any record being made of them. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about in the, the realms of tens of thousands of mountains at some point, but putting an actual number to it, I wouldn't hazard, hazard a guess, and I wouldn't imagine many other archaeologists would either. I think it's a really hard question to answer. Do you think that uh, it's something that <coughs> sort of began in the lower Mississippi Valley in terms of its North American presence and then spread mm-hmm. out from there, or do you think that these were independent of, uh, of any original starting point? Um, I mean, it, time-wise, it definitely started in the lower Mississippi Valley. So the earliest evidence of mound building that we have comes from a series of middle archaic sites in the lower valley, primarily in northeastern Louisiana, um, the most famous of which is Watson Break. It was sort of the... The one we found, we dated, we understood that they were building mountains in this, what we call the Middle Archaic period. The dates we have for that put it at about 3500 BC. Um, So these are, you know, 5,000 plus year old mounds. Um, However, we found a lot of other Middle Archaic mounds now as well, only some of which have been dated. Um, So I think that you could find some very well-respected professional archaeologists that would confidently say mounds were being built by 5,000 or 6,000 BC, um, but we don't have the radiocarbon dates yet to prove that. Um, So temporarily, they definitely, mound building starts in the lower valley. Um, We have a fair amount of evidence that 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 mound building 
practice sort of spread out from there, um, but we're missing some chunks of time. So they build mounds during the Middle Archaic. By the, med- by the end of the Middle Archaic, they sort of stop, and then they don't pick up again until fairly late in the Late Archaic. So a period of a little over, between 1,000 and 2,000 years, where we don't right now have any evidence of mound building. Now, it's really important to realize that these mounds are hard to see, they're hard to date, so we could have prob- we could have excavated at mounds that date in between those time periods, but because we didn't find wood or bone or something we can radiocarbon date, um, we've still got this big hole. So some people you talk to will claim that there's an actual break in mound building there, that like pre- the practice stops and then it picks back up again later. Other people will probably argue that there's... There's a slow, like, mound building slows, but that it might have continued at some low level throughout that time period and then sort of exploded again a little bit later. Um, What do you think? I think I would probably go towards the slowed. I I think it's unlikely that the practice stopped entirely. Um, However, it must have slowed pretty significantly because at, at, at this point we've done a lot of work and we haven't found any of those sites. But I would be very hesitant to say, a lot of people will use the word hiatus. There's this hiatus in mountain building, an absolute break. And I just, I find that a little bit unlikely. And I personally just believe that there's a lot more out there for us to find. And maybe we don't know exactly what those mounds looked like. Maybe they were very little or maybe they were built right on river, only right on riverbanks and now they're all flooded under. Or there's just, it seems like there's this huge number of possible explanations for why they're not there um and and yet and yet it seems kind of shocking to me that they actually just stopped building them that seems like one of the less likely explanations for that hiatus in our data right now i think it's probably a sampling thing more so than an actual break in mound building so it picks back up again at what point in time roughly um so it picks back up, and I, I'll check these dates for you, you know, before any of it goes out, but it picks back up with uh, the site of Poverty Point, some of the late archaic sites um, that date to about uh, 1,000, a little bit before 1,000 B.C. Um, so that's a, you know, one, about 2,000-year break. So Watson breaks at 3,500, Poverty Point's at maybe, say, 1,200 B.C. Um, we've got some other late archaic mounds scattered around, and then, and you'll notice this is kind of a pattern, um, there's a little bit of a lull. There are some what we call early woodland mounds, which is the next time period. Um, there are a few, we found them, but there's, there's not a ton. It's a pretty low point. And then during the middle woodland, the following period, say around AD 300, mound building explodes again. You see a huge amount of it all across the eastern United States. It's very widespread by that point instead of being isolated to the lower valley. Um, and then that sort of dies off, uh, and there's kind of a, a lull. We used to think there was a real lull during the late woodland. We've now realized that all sorts of incredible things are happening during that time period. Um, the effigy mound cultures of the upper Mississippi Valley thrive during that time period. The site that I'm excavating dates to the late woodland. So we now are sort of filling in a lot of these holes, and, I, and maybe that's part of what makes me believe that this, this uh, late middle archaic and early late archaic like hiatus will get filled in eventually because all the other ones have you know we used to think nothing exciting happened in the late woodland and now we know tons of exciting stuff happened there we used to think not much happened during the early woodland we're starting to figure out that a whole lot of exciting stuff happened there so i can't imagine that there's actually a cultural hiatus at this other time period either there's probably a lot of really interesting stuff happening there it's just so long ago that it's really hard to put our finger on when it picks back up again um is this do you think it's uh, population growth that's causing it? So we do have a lot, we do have a fair amount of evidence for um, mound building being something that happens at sort of times of plenty. So sometimes that, I mean, 
that often correlates very well with uh, population growth. So when there are a lot of natural resources, when the climate is particularly conducive to abundant natural resources, to agriculture, to any number of other things, um, then populations get bigger, ritual activity tends to, to sort of jump to a higher level, mound building gets bigger. So there is a correlation there. Um, but that's not to say that when things get a little bit rougher, again, that they give up the practice entirely. They just maybe can't commit quite so much time to doing it. And I think that we can all relate very well to that. You know, I mean, there's certain times in your life where you've got a lot of free time and you've got ev lots of things are falling in place for you. So you can put effort into all these things that, sure, they're really important to you, but you don't always do such a good job at them. And then, you know, things get busy again. And those things never fall away completely, but they kind of fall to the wayside while you put your energy into, you know, feeding your family and working and doing those sorts of things. And I think those same patterns hold true throughout prehistory as well. Um, and so, sure, I mean, there are times of population growth um, largely tied to times of, of good climatic conditions probably are to some degree an explanation for this type of behavior and this type of activity. Um, but it's also probably much more complex than that. There's probably other things factoring in, um, but there's only certain things you can see clearly in the archaeological record, and those are things that we can't see. So we tend to see those explanations as very likely. Okay, uh, Smith Creek, why did you choose this site in particular as the focus of this project? So that one's easier. Um, I chose this site because I've spent the last nine years or so excavating at um, the Feltis Mounds, which is a site of basically the same time period north of town. It's where I did my dissertation. Um, and I, when I was working there with my advisor, we kind of decided that at the end of our time together, it would make more sense rather than focusing two major projects' attention on a site that we already have a lot of data from, to sort of increase our sample size and, you know, say, okay, we, we saw these certain patterns at Feltis, now can we look at another site and say, this is a Coles Creek pattern, this is more broad, or is it just that this happened once at Feltis and it never occurred again? And so I wanted to look for a site that had the potential to answer that question. Is this a repeated pattern that we can see at a number of sites during this time period? Um, and Smith Creek was a really logical choice for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one, the one that initially attracted my attention, is that the site layout is almost identical. So Feltis has four rounds surrounding an open plaza. Um, the big one sits right on the edge of the bluff. Uh, going clockwise from that, the little one um, has burials in it and has a ditch around it. And then at Feltis, the smallest one's at the south end, and then there's a larger one to the west. Um, Smith Creek only has three mounds, uh, but other than that, it's set up about the same, with the big one right on the edge of the bluff, the burial mound with a ditch around it, um, and then one at the end of the plaza. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of site layout that I found really intriguing. Um, upon looking into it a little bit more, I learned that the archaeology that had already been done at the site confirmed that there were a lot of similarities. So they're finding similar pottery. Um, for me, what was really exciting is we were finding evidence of some similar ritual activities. So at Feltis, I argue that there's evidence of feasting associated with the setting and removal of these huge standing posts, um, and that all of that is associated with a degree of, of ceremonialism, particularly around surrounding bears, the use of bear bone. Um, so some very preliminary excavations done by local people in Natchez um, 
have found similar remains at Smith Creek. They found large post holes. They found massive midden or trash deposits that could represent feasting, and they found bare bone. And so that sort of piqued my attention, because now we've got a site that looks the same visually on the surface, but then I also have some evidence that under the surface there are similarities as well. Um, so that was kind of how I decided on it in the first place. And then what really solidified my interest was um, a couple of summers ago, we had a grant from the Federal Highways Department uh, to do a project called the Mississippi Mound Trail, um, which was aimed to be a public archaeology project that involved creating a driving trail um, on along which we would put uh, what we like to call prehistoric markers. So they look just like the historic markers you see along the highways now, but they're for prehistoric monuments instead of historic monuments. So as a part under the auspices of this project, we were actually able to excavate at Smith Creek during that summer just for two weeks. It was a fairly short excavation, um, but it gave me a chance to sort of get my own hands dirty there and look at the material and have kind of a third check. So it looks the same. I've heard that the artifacts look the same. Now I'm actually going to dig them myself and see if I still agree that there are similarities between this and Feltis. And there definitely are. I mean, when we got in there, it was perfect because it was sort of like starting a new project, but you didn't really have to start over in terms of what you had to learn to be prepared to dig because I knew all the pottery types. I knew what I would expect to find. kind of know what the dirt looks like. You know, I've got a good feel for it. Um, so that gave me the data that I needed to really make the argument that not only is it a great site to dig, but it's a big enough site that I can bring a crew of people down there and not run out of things for them to do. Um, so by adding those sort of three things together, it, it stands out as a really logical place for us to start. Our conversation wasn't finished there. Clearly, there's a lot that we don't know about the culture responsible for creating the mounds at Smith Creek. But thanks to a limited amount of field work conducted at the site over the years, as well as knowledge gained from excavations at other sites in the region, there's still more we can learn before we get into the field. Next time, we'll hear about the modern history of Smith Creek, as well as some of the work that goes into preparing for a project like this. We'll talk to you then. To find out more about the Penn Museum, visit us online at www.penn.museum. You can also read more about the Smith Creek Archaeological Project on the Penn Museum blog at pen.museum slash blog.